While recording this episode, it was announced that Queen Elizabeth II has passed away. Our hearts go out to her family, our contributors from the United Kingdom, and our listeners from around the world who admired her strength and grace. The Queen is dead. Long live the King. On this super episode of Starpod Log, we consider the contents of Starlog Magazine from 1981 in issues 45 and 46. Shocking John gives us the lowdown on Tom Christopher as Hawk and on collecting props from Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Bert Bruce provides info on Outland. Edward German tells us how science fiction was represented in comic books of the 1950s. Main man Jamie joins in to talk about how science fiction influenced comics of the 60s and 70s. The man of ill repute, Lou, along with Max and Rich, discuss details about the Planet of the Apes TV series that was in syndication. Steve Jonas and Michael Bailey consider the awesomeness of Superman 2. Kirby Bartlett Sloan tells us what it was like to watch Doctor Who in syndication on PBS in the early 1980s. And more on this episode of Star Pod Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey cutie pie. Hey Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and retro pop culture. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Trek. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine or read it for free online at archive.org. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows? We might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. We will be attending Music City Multicon on October 28th through 30th. This convention is a multimedia convention with a focus on vintage video games, the classics. There's actually a full stand-up arcade there. Computers, consoles, I mean, you name it. It's pretty amazing. They had a huge selection of games last year. It was a lot of fun, and they had, like, gaming all night. And January 6th through 8th is ShadowCon, Memphis, Tennessee. What do we love about ShadowCon? It's a fan-run con, and, of course, we know the the guys who run it, and they're a lot of fun. Live-action sword fighting, as well as board gaming. It's a must-see. It's the first convention of the year. We always look forward to it. Starlog Magazine, issue number 45, cover date, April 1981. Log entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. 
The Magic and Mystery of Excalibur Prior to the Star Wars phenomenon, no major director had as firm a commitment to fantastic film as did John Borman. Long before Conan became a household word, Borman gave us Zardoz, which cast Sean Connery as a sharp-witted barbarian faced with powerful wizardry. In 1970, he began pre-production on a live-action version of Lord of the Rings, a project which lamentably died when the studio financing the project suddenly realized its awesome proportions. So this article gives us the background of the director that would tackle this epic sword and sorcery legend of Excalibur. A story of King Arthur. A movie with Patrick Stewart before people knew who he was. And Liam Neeson? Yes. When we rewatched this movie in preparation for all things 1981, I have to say, this still is my favorite adaptation of The Legend of King Arthur. It's just so epic in scope, and it's, it's surreal in many ways. When I watched it as a kid, I'm looking at it now saying, whew, this was pretty strong stuff. You could tell a lot went into it. The visuals, the scenery, all the... All the different sets, because there was so much stuff happening in it. It's very adult content. Yeah, it was a rated R movie. This is like Game of Thrones before Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah the relationships, the violence, yes. Hitchhikers get rides in U.S. Originally produced by Jeffrey Perkins for the BBC, the 12-part radio series follows hot on the heels of NPR's Playhouse release date of the Star Wars radio show, March 2nd. So Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was going to be on the radio, a unique characterization of Douglas Adams' classic, which would include actors David Tate, Alan Ford, Jeffrey McGiven, as well as others. This was the height of people wearing buttons that said, Don't Panic! Tom Christopher a wingless hawk flies high on the new Buck Rogers. For this segment, we would like to introduce my brother-in-law, the co-host of Shocking Things Podcast. Thanks for joining us again, John. Hello, Kavura. So what did you think about Buck Rogers as a child? Uh, it was actually one of my favorite television uh, series growing up. We grew up in a time where Star Wars was huge, and because Star Wars was so huge, they had all these other science fiction properties pop up to capitalize on it. And Buck Rogers was one of them. And I remember it was a big deal watching that uh, as you know, a young child. Nayar wasn't really into it, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. that That's kind of, um, kind of like it is now. I mean, Nayar still doesn't enjoy it as much as I do. <laughs> We're doing a rewatch of it now, but um, I, I loved Buck Rogers as a child. It was one of my favorite shows and so, and of course, and I've talked about it on, on our podcast too, I, where I just, it was just something I always looked forward to as a kid. But of course, the first and second seasons were very different. Um, what did you think about the changes they made to the second season? Well, uh, it's very odd, especially as a kid. I had no idea what was going on. It just went from one extreme to another. I like the second season. I know it's not very popular with a lot of Buck Rogers fans. And I can understand why, because it's drastically different. It's almost like the first season 
more like lighthearted and then it just fast forwards into like a more serious type show like almost overnight i could see like progressing if the series went on let's say five years down the road and it changed little by little into what season two was that would make more sense but it went from one extreme to another but i did like it i really liked the character hawk a lot actually yeah so the second season kind of Went went to a different, a totally different direction. Like like it could have just been a new show. They could have just recast it with different characters. I mean that's how different it was, and no no real explanation. I mean they just said we're we're going into space now. They they made they made some kind of sentence about it, but it was still, it, it was still very jolting. And um, the the way the first se- it was really the first season that I loved the most. It was it was more lighthearted, more comical, and then you get to this the second season where it's so serious. And they they only had Buck and Wilma and Tweaky as continuing characters from the first season, and and you know Buck and Wilma, especially Buck, was just so much more serious. No more of his um, snappy one-liners and everything. And it it was just um, not not really as interesting to me. I I didn't really like the second season as much. It's, yeah, it went in this odd direction. Uh, Aaron Gray as Wilma Deering wasn't like the strong female lead anymore. She was just kind of like there do you agree yeah. she didn't really do yeah. very much anymore and the way Aaron gray Aaron gray even mentioned how she the second season she was more uh, of the helpless woman ne- yes. needed rescuing more not not really as much uh in the action not not as much like buck's equal yeah no it's uh, that's one aspect of it i really did not like and then you lost like you said these characters after watching a full season you really uh like the character like Dr. Hewer, and then all of a sudden he got replaced. Yeah, with, with someone totally different. <laughs> yes. But well, with the addition of Hawk, and, and I do think he was the best new character of the second season, um, what did you think about him and how it gave us the, the backstory of Easter Island? I liked it. I thought it was a, it was a two-parter, right? It was yes. the time of the Hawk, right? Yeah, no, I, I liked it. I, I remember Gil Gerard was saying – Whoever took over NBC at the time, that's why there was a drastic change. And if you heard that about uh, there's like a shakeup at NBC and he, whoever was in charge, wanted the show to be completely different. I guess he wasn't really crazy about it. And uh, this premise was uh, taken from a a Western. So instead of uh, like Hawk and Corey, there were Native Americans that were in that role, actually. The same, he said it was like almost exactly the same story. They just changed it to being into space with those characters, like Hawk and Corey instead of Native Americans, and Buck would be like the cowboy character. Yeah, I did hear about that. That they were they were basing it on a western, which didn't make sense to me, you know. And and really, why and what was wrong with it, <laughs> with the way it was the first season? Like exactly, yeah, yeah. it's a popular show. People enjoyed it, right? And then you're just like, ah, eh, you know, I have the power. I'm gonna just, <laughs> just gonna change it. Yeah, just because I want to, or something. And, and I remember that there was someone that wrote a review of it that said the second season didn't attract any new fans and alienated the first season fans, which is yeah, pretty much I, I, it. I, I, yep. Now that makes sense. It definitely. Uh, I don't know. Maybe like a handful. So literally maybe a handful of uh, – but they they lost more of the, the loyal fans and gained new ones, I'd say. Maybe maybe gain, yeah, maybe they gained some, but I know, but it, the show got canceled, though, after the after the second season, which was also yeah. pretty tragic. 
Yeah, they didn't even get a full season, right? If I'm not mistaken, was there 18 episodes? If you remember, um, but yeah, it's not because... even a full 24-episode season. Well, it started late because of the writer's strike. Mm-hmm. So after that, yeah, they just couldn't do a full season. So one thing it says here, and, and there was a Starlog article interviewing uh, Tom Christopher, who played Hawk. So one thing, like, you know, and I love his feather headdress, but he said that, like, the feather headdress actually had to be remade every day. Oh, wow. Can you imagine? That sounds expensive. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And they definitely cut the budget, too, if you could tell visually when you look at season one to season two. Definitely didn't have the the higher budget compared to the that's the the one thing they spent money on, right? Was the was it was the feathers? Yeah. <laughs> well, that that is another thing. This article says was they um they they tried not to put the emphasis on the um effects and have it more on the people, which yeah makes sense. But but you also have to wonder like, well if they if they're not spending as much time on the effects, then that probably is because they have a lower budget, because they could do both. They could have good effects and good stories. Yeah, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of science fiction television series, they say that's always the budget. That's why they canceled the, I know, like, Alienations, one show, they said everything was great, but they said oh, it was too expensive to keep doing this over and over again. So they said, oh, we'll replace with a comedy. It's, it's easier. That's the problem with a lot of these science fiction shows, unfortunately. They don't want to spend the money on the budget. Yeah, which could be the reason they have the, like, a lot of shows on now on streaming where they only go 10 episodes. Mm-hmm. You can have you can have um like a big budget and not make as many episodes or on a, on a lower budget, so it kind of works out that way. So, uh, what were your favorite Buck Rogers toys that you used to collect? Oh, uh, I love the Draconian Guard, the figure. This, uh, this, growing up as a kid, that was one of my favorite figures: the Draconian Guard, the three and three quarter inch figure, uh, Tiger Man, uh, Twiki. I still have my childhood Twiki figure, actually. Yay! <laughs> yep, is is he real that. tiny? Yeah, how tall really is tiny, he? Uh, maybe two inches tall, so he's smaller Aww. than the other ones. <laughs> 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 Just like Felix Silla, he's tiny. But yeah, so I love those. And then as I got older, I I would find the other ones like the twelve inch figures. If you ever seen those, uh, the Tiger Man is really really cool for that. The Draco, he comes with the the crown. Those are some of them. They made a, a playset uh, for the Starfighter. That's actually pretty hard to, to find nowadays. But yeah, no, it was it was a fun little toy line. I don't even think I had any toys for Buck Rogers. I guess my parents just never. I mean, because you know, I, I didn't have unless my parents bought them for me. And I don't. I guess they never really saw any in stores. I know my yeah. brother uh, used to make models, and he he made a model of the the Draconia, which was really neat looking. It is, yeah, that's nice. Yep, it's definitely really cool. Yeah, they made that in the Starfighter, the the model kits. Yes. And I know, um, like at a con one time I saw the the doll for Princess Ardala and it was supposed to be from the 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 movie, the original pilot. Yeah. But they really changed the costume. I mean they gave it more more cloth. Yeah. It looked, yeah. It looked weird, the figure, it wasn't like painted correctly. Yeah, it looked odd. Yeah, it's the way they did some action figures back then, right? They some of them don't even look anything like the original character. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> some of them like partially do, and they didn't paint them correctly, or yeah, because uh, I remember the Draconian Guards, one of them, not painted. There's like the prototype on the back of the package looks nothing like the figure. The paint job on it's totally different. Probably to save money too, is a cost cutting thing at times. 
So, so what's uh, something that you wish Migo made for Buck Rogers? Oh, we talk about Hawk. I always wanted a Hawk figure. They never made that. That's one of them that unfortunately never got made. I'm trying to think. Well, I mean, that's one of the main ones. Just, I mean, it would have been nice if they expanded and did more for different episodes. I'm they probably never made anything for the second season, did they? No, the only because everything for the first season for the toys were pretty much the same that are in the the pilot, except for there's one. I'm trying to think. It was called the Land Rover. That was in the. It was like a two-parter. That was at the end of the first season that had Julie Newmar in it. I can't think of the name. Oh yeah, uh, Flight, Flight of the, the War Witch. There's a oh, Land that, the... Rover. Yeah, no, yeah. There's a little vehicle they show in there briefly that bucks in. And they made a toy of that. That's the only one that they made that wasn't in the pilot or the movie. Oh, okay, and, yeah. And they also just made it. They made this other. I, I don't know what came first, the black hole, a laser scope fighter. I don't think that was ever in anything. That is just a generic <laughs> type of oh, thing. Oh, something yeah. else they just label Retur- slapped <laughs> the Buck Rogers. Yeah. And they did that with another Buck Rogers thing called the Star Searcher, and it was a Micronauts vehicle that the, didn't exist, you know. Okay. Well, the Searcher was the name of the ship in the second season. Yeah. But, yep, but, that, but it wasn't that. Like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have been neat to have um, to have Hawk and um, and Corey. Oh, yeah, Corey was played by Barbara Luna. <laughs> yes. And, and I always liked her, too. I liked her in, in that, in that uh, pilot. But, yeah, it would have been neat to have action figures of those two. Yeah, they tried another company maybe 10 or so years ago tried to get those made and they only made Buck and, and uh, Tiger Man, right? And then he wanted to do all the other ones. They had prototypes, but yeah, they never made the, the Hawk never got in production, just a prototype. But yeah, but they planned on another company doing it, but it just unfortunately didn't, didn't get to that next, the next step. What about any other um, props? Did you have anything else from Buck Rogers? Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of what year this was. There's a company called Profiles in History, and the they're out of business now. I forgot what company he works for. It might be Julian's, one of the big auction uh, houses now. The the owner works for now. They had a television series on Sci-Fi Channel, and they would show some of the props that they would get and they would sell an auction and they had an auction years ago, might've been 2003 or so. And I won some of the items that were for sale. Oh, okay. Mostly from, there's an episode called Olympiad. Yes. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. They had a lot of uh, costumes from that. that I was lucky enough to win. Uh, prices started off very low and I got lucky that, uh, to get those, there's a, I got a boxing glove. If you remember, they like lit up instead of actually punching someone, you would just move Make your, the motion. your hand forward. Yeah, yeah, that was it, funny. <laughs> oh, so you actually have those, huh? Yeah, I have one of the boxing gloves is made out of fiberglass. I have a lot of the costumes uh, from a lot of the characters in that episode. Actually, I'm trying to think what else I have from uh, Flight of the War Witch. I have one of Aaron Gray's costumes. It's a this brown costume with like a copper belt and some like copper uh, like gauntlets. I have that, okay. and then I have one of Buck's costumes that he wore a few different times in season one and season two. It's a, just a brown jumpsuit. 
and then sometimes you wear a jacket over the jumpsuit and i have uh that costume and then from planet hollywood at one point about 20 or so years ago in orlando they would sometimes just sell what props that they had they would you know they would uh redo their whole display and they would eliminate some things and then just you know just to make it fresh you know so you keep coming back in to see things they don't want to have the same props over and over again so they would sell some things and then replenish it and i bought one of the draconian guard helmets that was oh, in orlando oh those are cool looking yeah yes. so it looks like a samurai helmet and this is interesting because if you remember they're kind of like a brownish color in the uh or like a orange almost like an orange type like rust color yes. is the best way to say it and uh, with some black highlights, I want to say the one I have is painted a dark, almost chocolate brown because it does look like a samurai helmet. They repurposed it universal for the uh, the television series Tales of the Golden Monkey. OK, yeah, I saw a few episodes of that. So that was the same helmet. Yes. Yeah, yep. They just they just repainted it. Oh, interesting. It seems like those those helmets had a little the thing over the ears, right? An extra thing hanging out on over the yeah, ear part yeah which was funny looking it. yeah it's a very samurai looking helmet and sometimes they wear goggles they don't have the goggles that, that come with it too <laughs> you'd see sometimes oh and i did also I'm trying to think too from auction draconian guard costume but not the type with the armor if you remember from the motion picture in the pilot they would sometimes show them walking around with just um it's almost like a long sleeve shirt with like a dragon on it I don't know if that sounds yeah. familiar. So I have one of those and a pair of the boots too. Oh, so you've you've basically got pretty much a whole cosplay almost. <laughs> you could yeah, you could yeah. fill in some places. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But so yeah, what I are your... was lucky to acquire them. You know, like I said, it's a different time. There wasn't as much interest in props or anything back at that. It seems like in the past five or so years, it's gotten it's gained. Like Star Wars was something that was always very popular and always very expensive. I could tell you, but Everything else was pretty affordable back then, and now it seems like all this stuff is creeping up in price now. Yeah, they're becoming more valuable, and people are, are people are willing to pay more because they're rare. Yes. Yeah. So, what are your favorites in your collection? Yeah, the, the Buck Rogers stuff is is among my favorite. Are you talking about just props? Just in Buck Rogers, or well, anything you've your Buck Rogers collection. Yeah. So those, yeah, those just because they're very unique. You know, anything that's not Mac. As produced, I always look at it as being unique. You can't just walk in a store and buy them. And that's why I was hoping, I was like, uh, there was like so many auctions going on at once. And I was like, uh, all right, I can't bid on everything. So let me just bid on a few things. And <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So you got something good, though. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for Olympiad, I really liked that episode. I was lucky to get almost every character's costume from that. Besides Buck and Wilma and Dr. Hewer, I have all the other characters in that episode, their, their costumes. So that was, I thought was a good opportunity to get that. Oh, like the, the different the uh, characters. athletes. Yeah. Yeah. They had, they had so much going on in that episode and you know, they, they made it just to tie into the Olympics. Like it was just something, yeah. you know, you know, like let's, let's say that this carried on to the 25th century. Yes. Yeah. And so it was, uh, like similar today, like the way things are, because people were watching it virtually, if you remember in that episode, too. So they weren't there present, you know, like a huge crowd. They're all like almost watching like you'd watch online now 
or yeah. on television, the way things are going on. If you remember, that's how the crowd, you hear the crowd sound, but it was all from a speaker. Yeah, they, yeah, you could hear, you could hear something cheering. Oh, and they, and they also had a loudspeaker, an announcer too. But yeah, they didn't show the audience. They just showed, um, all the different athletes. They were all in one room doing, doing their thing at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, I, that's, that's up there just because it's, I mean, granted, it was also great to have the, the Gill and, uh, they have like at least one costume from Gill and one costume from Aaron Gray. That's, that's uh, definitely cool. Even though it's not the, the white costumes, I'm not complaining. Just that they have any other. I can't complain. <laughs> Okay, so to close up, just tell our listeners about your podcast and where they can find it. Uh, Shocking Things is a podcast where my wife, Laura, and I will talk about horror films, uh, science fiction. We'll have guests come on. Sometimes Nair will come on as one of the guests. Uh, some of the films we talked about are Conan and the Barbarian, uh, the television series The Twilight Zone, the original, uh, Soylent Green. Uh, Friday Thirteenth film, so it's uh, we mix it up a little bit. And any podcatcher, you just type in "shocking things," you can find us. Hey, it's your friendly neighborhood uh, Starlog critiquer Bruce Burt, also known as Bruce Burtner. And this week we're going to talk about Outland, uh, directed by Peter Hyam. There's a writer and director, Peter Hyam, takes us behind the scenes on his upcoming sci-fi drama, Outland. I, I hate the word sci-fi. I usually say science fiction or speculative fiction. This is a good article, and it's uh, Peter Hyams. He also directed uh, the sequel to 2001, A Space Odyssey, 2010, The Year We Made Contact. Not a very good film. I love uh, Roy Scheider, Bob Balaban. Uh, the Helen Mirren is in it as a Russian cosmonaut. Love the actors. The script was weak, and John Lithgow was overacting his buttocks off john lithgow kind of ruined the movie for me john lithgow ruins a lot of movies for me though i did not like him in uh, buckaroo Banzai either in the eighth dimension john lithgow is anathema anyway peter hyams directed a lot of stuff he was kind of the hot hot director in the uh early 80s he was up there with spielberg and lucas and uh, he uh did uh work with them but they offered Lucas, they said, Alan Ladd Jr., this was his first independent movie when he was away from the studio system. And Lucas said, hey, I'll do your special effects for your landings and your uh, mock-ups for your uh, spaceships. And Peter Hyam said, no, no, thank you. I'd like to do it myself. And I think the movie really suffers for it. It's kind of got a cheap Babylon 5 vibe to it. Not that there's anything wrong with Babylon 5. Those computer-generated spaceships are just fine if you like that kind of stuff. But the Outland uh, spaceships were pedestrian at best, and the interior sets were uh, – they they are what they are. The movie's not bad. Go re rewatch it. I mean, it's not a bad movie. Sean Connery, how can you go wrong? Peter Boyle. There's a movie by Peter Boyle, early 1970, called Joe. He plays a construction worker who hates hippies and kills one. But it's almost like an acid trip. This movie is spectacular. If you can find Joe, circa 1970-71, and this is right about the time he did Taxi Driver and he played Wizard opposite Robert De Niro. So uh, Peter Boyle is just, he's just phenomenal. Anyway, uh, this movie's good. It's high noon on the uh, moon, uh, I guess the Jupiter moon of Io. 
And uh, Hyams wrote the script. He tried to make it that, uh, he tried to appeal to his boys. He had an 11 and a 13 year old at the time who were real Star Wars uh, aficionados. And I think he was trying to appeal to that, uh, that group of uh, moviegoers. I don't think he succeeded. He didn't understand what made Star Wars Star Wars. He tried to go for the uh, more realistic, gritty outer space. It'd probably do better today in this atmosphere, but in 1977 through 1983, we wanted kind of the Flash Gordon whiz-bang-pow, you know, not quite as dark as uh, this movie was. It deals with uh, a bunch of uh, abusers of drugs in outer space on that moon. In other words... These guys make a lot of money mining on that on that moon of Io, and they uh, they party hard. They like their drugs, and there's a murder in Sean Connery's The Marshal. Now, I say that to say this: there's a secondary actor that they meant to cast as a man, and they put Frances Sternhagen as the doctor, and she's very good in it. She's one of the best parts of the movie. How do you know Frances Sternhagen? She played Mother Clavin to Cliff Clavin in Cheers. I know you've seen Cheers. I know you've seen Cliff Clavin. I know you've seen his mother. And that was a spectacular job she did playing uh, a Boston uh, New Englander with the accent and everything. And she really worked well uh, versus Cliff Clavin, John Ratzenberger. She's a great actress. She's known for a lot of theater work and didn't do much in movies. But when she was in a movie, she made it better. And she was very uh, realistic and believable as a doctor in this series. Sean Connery, again, does a great job. Peter Hyams was lucky to cast him. Connery at that time was really trying to diversify. He did everything from Never Say Never Again to, there was a, and I can't think of the name of it. He played a journalist who was uh, his own producer. He filmed it and he'd send it up to the satellites. And it was a, you know, kind of a fictional uh, journalist who was his own uh, you know, one-man team, which nowadays, that's, you know, here we are 40 years later, and that's a reality. A lot of journalists and uh, especially uh, local newscasters do the same, where they uh, produce and broadcast and film themselves and send the tape live to a satellite feed. And I cannot think of the name of the movie, but it was actually pretty good. He was also in the Presidio at that time, so he was doing a lot of good work. Sean Connery in the 80s was on fire and was very good. Hyams goes on to say about this movie, uh, he tried to write something that was believable. He tried to design something that he felt was believable. He tried to photograph it in a believable way. The single most important thing for Hyams was to make a film that seemed feasible. He hoped that when people come out of Outland, they will think it's not only feasible, but probable. I have a feeling that this is what is going to be there. I think the next stage in space exploration will not be to plant a flag. It will be because we need resources. We need fuels. We need uranium. We need metals. There's a great deal of territory out there to get it from. Once we have the hardware to do it, we'll do it. Well, here we are 40 years later, and we haven't really done it, have we, people? I think that even though the moon has water on it and you could use it as a source of fuel, we've never colonized the moon and that's only 240,000 miles away from us. Mars seems like an improbability at this point because trying to live on the surface, the radiation will kill you or scramble your molecules so bad that you'll grow a third ear and another leg. So although I agree with him in principle, the facts are it's not only cost prohibitive, but anything that you could mine to try to get back to Earth would cost you a trillion dollars to do so. So although I'm a big proponent of space uh, 
uh, travel and space exploration. The uh, actual uh, trying to make it happen is uh, a lot more difficult than uh, we naively assumed back in 1980. Even Nixon, I was watching a documentary recently, and Nixon, after Apollo 8 or, the, you know, after the first five Apollo missions, he's like, we've been to the moon, there's nothing up there, we don't need to go back. There is nothing up there of value. In other words, had they found a big deposit of gold, oh, we'd be back at the moon tomorrow. If they found uh, precious metals like rhodium or uranium, we'd be on the moon as we speak, but they didn't even test the surface or the soil for any kind of precious metals or things that uh, we might use in uh, further exploration of space that might be uh, of monetary value here on Earth. So anyway, I say that to say this. The plot's pretty good, but it kind of, it's slow moving. I saw it in theaters and it just seemed like it drugged a little bit. So we had some really spectacular movies during that that period of time, and this one kind of got lost by the wayside. Not to say it's not worth watching. It is worth watching. It's good. It's just not spectacular. It's not up there in the upper echelon. It'd be like a B-movie picture. It'd be like, uh, you know, a Corman classic. And again, I never really liked the way they filmed or photographed the uh, the ships and the uh, the uh, outpost on the moon of Io. wasn't quite what I was looking for. And... Uh, Hyams was no George Lucas. Had he been smart, if if George Lucas offers to film your spaceships and your uh, space mining colony, you say yes. If George Lucas says he wants to help you with anything, he has a track record. Accept his help. You can work together. It's stupid not to. I don't know what the hell was wrong with this guy. He uh, goes on to talk about Sean Connery and the all-star cast, which is a very good cast. And uh, the movie, unfortunately, I think the script suffers. It's a little bit pedantic and uh, pedestrian. But, as I say, it's not terrible. And uh, it's got a little, if you look on page uh, 50 of this uh, issue, it'll say the shuttle carrying O'Neill begins its descent on Con Am 27. It's got a real Space 1999 vibe. It's got exhaust coming out of the thrusters, and it's got... uh, it's a little cross between 2001 and Space 1999. So it's not a terrible movie, but it's not the best movie you'll ever see. If you've never seen it, please give it a watch. If you have seen it, I'm sure you'll agree with me. It could have been better, but it wasn't uh, wasn't the most horrible thing I've ever seen. I think they tried to really uh, talk this movie up, and it, it was just never going to be a hit. It was. I, I don't think it lost money, but I don't think it made money. I think it did better when it went to a video it probably made its money on VHS video cassette at that time. You know, people rented it and watched it that way. This is back when VHS video cassettes cost a hundred dollars a piece. So you rented, you didn't, you never bought. Of course, uh, times have changed drastically. Now you can get a UH, you can get a DVD deluxe Blu-ray for a dollar. Go figure that one out. Hello, I'm Ever German, host of the 1950s Sci-Fi Podcast. I'm speaking here once again about 50s sci-fi and Starlog magazine. Today I'm going to discuss sci-fi in the comics and how there was a big boom during the 50s. I've already touched on that topic before on my podcast show. I've also read comic book titles from the 50s and comics from other decades. However, I will talk about an article in the April 1981 issue of Starlog. The story is... SF in the Comics, Part 5, The Big 50s Boom, by Ron Gallart. The 1950s was quite a time for comics readership. 
to increase, and controversy arose from the baby boom. The baby boom was an increased birth rate created by returning service persons and starting families after the war. It created a new market of readers for the comic industry during the period. However, despite the best efforts of the industry, concerned parents, teachers, and others believed comics were the cause of juvenile delinquency, so much so that it led to the congressional hearings and the creation of the Comics Code. But the focus on this Starlog article is SF comic strips that appeared in the newspapers of the time. During the post-war years, the public experienced an advancement in science and technology. Now, rockets were not the only, not the exclusive domain of Buck Rogers nor atomic weapons, but a reality that would manifest itself in the comic strips of the 50s. This meant that comic strips of the 50s would be more sophisticated and new characters would be introduced. One of the first strips to appear was a TV tie-in to the Tom Corbett Space Cadet. Tom Corbett was one of the first SF shows on TV and was previously discussed in a recent podcast. The comic strip boasted about how it was a thrilling and adventurous comic based on scientific fact. The strip offered... Interesting visions of the future, displaying moving sidewalks and short skirts for the ladies. There was even an educational panel at the end of the Sunday edition called Space Dust. One panel explained how a V-2 rocket engine worked. The V-2 was a forerunner of the rockets we have today. Not long after the publication of Tom Corbett, a spin-off strip was produced by the NEA. This was Chris Wicken Panettiere created by Russ Winterbottom. In this strip, Chris stated he was a planeteer, but was more likely an astronaut instead. The strip would often show how tough it was to be a space explorer. The strip creator had a strong background in SF and brought real science into the, into the stories. Also around this time, King Features Syndicate bought, brought back Flash Gordon. However, it wasn't the same as the 30s version. It had been upgraded to include more realistic science and gadgets. Later on, the strip added elements of the original series to the comic. You would see the return of Ming the Merciless. Overall, it was considered a good comic strip. The 50s continued with more sci-fi comics. There was one more that was dusted off and reused. It was Scorchy Smith by Britt Bradford. The strip was published in the 30s, and Scorchy was a daredevil pilot in the vein of Charles Lindbergh. The comic was reintroduced in the 50s, but as a space explorer driving a rocket ship around visiting other planets. The strip, the strip was very campy and didn't circulate very long. Finally, two more strips are very notable. First up is Beyond Mars by Jack Williamson. This strip was about the adventures of a special engineer named Mike Flint who lived on asteroids some 200 years into the future. It is loosely based on the novel written by the same creator. The plot of the strip followed a Dick Tracy pattern of having a new villain every week. The strip did include some good science, but it only lasted three years. It was published exclusively in the New York News. Last comes government agent Jet Scott, who worked for a little-known agency in the Pentagon. The Office of Scientific Fact investigated crimes involving science and tech. Examples were bootleg plutonium and toxic chemicals. 
The strip was created by Jerry Robertson and Sheldon Stark. They both had solid backgrounds in comics. Stark had been working for comics during the 30s, while Robertson had been Batman creator Bob Kane's assistant. Robertson takes credit for creating the Joker, but denies he was the inspiration for Robin. The strip was also short-lived, only lasting just under two years. There would be one or two more strips introduced in the 50s, but they started to die out in the latter part of the decade. There would not be anything like the boom until the late 70s with the Star Wars movies. Well, that's all for this segment. Be sure to check, read the article in Starlog. Include our three comic panels from the 50 strips. If you want to hear more about 50s comics or all things 50s sci-fi, check out my podcast, the 1950s Science Fiction Podcast. You can find it on Anchor FM, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcast. Of the Apes. Wow, is that a wild show? Well, I'm Rich Hurley, uh, also known as Dr. Durant of Dr. Durant Sanctum. Uh, I have a YouTube channel where we talk about uh, all cool things from the 60s, 70s, and beyond comic books, toys, etc. And uh, with us tonight, or this morning, or whenever you're listening to this, is. Well, or Max Overnighter. Actually, I'm going to do Max's. Max Overnighter. Max Overnighter, also known as Maximus Overnightus. Aficionado a la Batman and all things vintage, if you will. Beware the beast, Lou. He is the devil's pawn. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport or lust or greed. He will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Shun him. Drive him back into his jungle lair, for he is a harbinger of death. Spaceballs, there goes the planet. <laughs> wow. The planet of the apes. The planet of the apes is my my wheelhouse for sure. I mean, I, I've been a planet of the apes fan for as long as I can remember. I mean, this, this, this was, I think, for most of us, our Star Wars. And, yeah, who doesn't love Planet of the Apes? Right, well, and I think it still holds up, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I actually a... saw Planet of the Apes. The first Planet of the Apes I saw, I knew of Planet of the Apes because it was so probably because of this TV show, um, which was on when I was a kid. I knew of Planet of the Apes because of the cartoon series. They had a Saturday morning cartoon called Return to the Planet of the Apes. That was the first Planet of the Apes I saw. I mean, I had the comic books and the Migos, and as a matter of fact, the Planet of the Apes Migos were the first Migos I had. Um, I got them when I was, I think I was in first grade. And I think my dad got me the treehouse. I know he got me the treehouse, but I think it was the treehouse that came with all the apes in it. Because I remember having everything. You mean the impossible to find ape yeah. treehouse with all the apes in it? Yeah, I had the treehouse, but I didn't have all the stuff in it. Because it had because I had Dr. Zaius, Cornelius, uh, the astronaut, the soldier ape. Uh, the only one I never had was Urko or Ursus growing up, and that was the one I wanted the most because that helmet was the coolest thing in the world, I thought. They were very violent apes. You shouldn't play with them. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, the thing, thing with those, I mean, people still to this day build the ape armies and all of that stuff and, yeah. you know, putting them on the horses. And, you know, it was just, I mean, it was... Uh, it was so different than any 
was on television. And that was just, you know, I mean, you know, 50s and 60s, it was, you know, all about, uh, you know, space aliens and, and all of that. And, you know, to think of, a, you know, this alternate world where apes are in charge and humans are our slaves was just a totally different take from anything else. And it made it so terribly unique. And um, the makeup and all of that, that was, that was involved in that show um, was just fantastic. It was, it was very eye appealing and it was, um, you know, it's not hard to see why that had such a cult following. And, uh, you know, it's just, just unbelievable. And it still TV. holds up to this day that that makeup, like it's like you can see that the, the the thing they did with the makeup that was great was you can actually see the actors' emotions behind the makeup. I think they they probably, you know, you could always just feel who was behind that makeup. It didn't feel like someone you know was was heavily made up that you couldn't tell who was back there. You know, Roddy McDowell, uh, you know, was fantastic in it. Is I mean, he played every ape in all of them except for Beneath the Planet of the Apes. He was he was Cornelius and caesar and then galen in the tv series yeah and and the thing you know i mean i think the thing about that that made it so good and you know it was you know you know we're not talking about just guys in monkey suits you know because i mean we're you like you say you know they they could emote through that makeup because it was you know fixtures and there was so much um emotion and humanity that you could see even in some of the, you know, the more violent apes, you know, I mean, it was just, it was just incredible, you know, that, uh, you know, so to see that. The 70s, right? That was some, that was some real makeup. There's no CGI in that stuff. I mean, even, even we were talking a little bit earlier about even where they were filming these things, right? So now it's a park, but what was it called? Ape City, Richard? Or, or yeah, Ape, Ape, Ape City. City. You're talking about the uh, the old Fox Ranch or the the park where they used to film all the series and stuff yeah. like that. California, that's really cool. That's it's it's amazing. I was watching the thing where they're showing how they literally went out and they grew corn to make the cornfield, and it yeah. took a few years to get it growing. I mean, they weren't CGI and corn; they were growing it for real to get them to run through it. And you only really get one shot at that, unless you go to the section of the corn once you knock the corn down, but it's really cool. Well, the thing that, that was fascinating about the TV series is, is if you follow the lineage of the films, right? In the first film, all the men are primitive. You know, man, uh, humans are just primitive animals. They're kept in zoos and stuff like that. And then you've got cavemen, mutants, and all this other stuff. And then, but you know, in in the TV series, everybody speaks, but you know, man is just considered a lower class than apes. Yes, and uh, so like all the characters, and you got to see this expansion of the ape world because again they use the the fugitive template. You know, Galen and the astronauts are are running all over the planet of the apes, trying to find a way for the astronauts to escape the planet of the apes, and they go to a different ape town every week and stuff like that. And I even yes. remember one episode where you'd probably love this one, Lou, where there's sharks. You know, like there, there's like these ape fishermen and stuff like that, and they have they have like these sharks off the coast of like, uh, not Ape City, whatever town they're in or village they're in. It was really cool. I mean, what's cool in the Planet of the Apes and sharks? That, not definitely nothing's cool in that. I do remember one episode where he's 
I forget what it's called, but he's he's like um, it's like a father son, and they're like gladiators. Oh yes, and, and and the son I think is I think the son's a guy that played Beastmaster or something like Mark, it is. Is Mark it's Singer, Mark or something. Singer. Yep. yeah, and I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, is that Mark Singer or whatever? But I mean, he was like probably like 16 years old in a minute and the other guy i recognized too because he was in everything back in william the day. smith yes he's been, he always plays like bikers and bad guys yeah, exactly. and guys and stuff that's like the episode that. i remember or the one with, that's what was that the one with the horse race no that wasn't with the horses there was no, another that's one the gladiators you're right it's the gladiators with is, mark yeah. singer and william smith yep. yeah yeah that was fun it, it was a good show i mean i used to watch that show with my father that's the one thing i probably remember the most i was very young and I remember watching that show with my father. And you know, it's funny, like, as I got older and I realized that, hey, you know, the Planet of the Apes TV show and then doing research, realizing, you know, I mean, what, like 13 episodes or something? I mean, they didn't make that many. Or it, it's yeah, it so wasn't very few. successful for some reason. I mean, the movies had had diminishing returns as they were coming out, but then they were pretty successful when uh, when they started to do, um, whatchamacallit, they, they had... Um, they had done the uh, the the marathons, the all night marathons, yeah, the marathons. marathons, and so that got everybody all excited about it. And so they did the TV series because they thought they could, you know, get yeah. more out of this, bleed this stone as much as possible, yeah. and it didn't do as well. And I think that's where yes. Migo came in with the the figures was, you know, they were really going after the TV series, and that's why they have the thing. Yeah, and they and they, I mean, they they actually, I mean, they saw. I mean, Planet of the Apes stuff is highly collectible now. I mean, everything. I had like, you know, the little plastic cups, Planet of the Apes. I had a placemat with Planet of the Apes. I mean, that was a thing in the seventies. Everything was like a placemat. You get your name on it. Some crappy right. placemat with stuff and whatever. But um, yeah, I think the highly collectible. Which to me, it still blows me away. I guess that it didn't succeed more than it did. And I remember being a kid, like as an adult, I'm like, wow, man, that show went on for years. Yeah. And it was just a very short lived type thing. And, um, but it was good. I mean, I thought, I don't know. I thought that for TV, I thought they did it. I thought they did a good job. I watched something about, you know, playing the apes and making of it. And they did say, not, I don't think it was the TV show. I think maybe it was one of the movies, but they said they got to one point where the, they were getting a little cheap on spending money. So instead of actually doing like the appendages, like they were doing for Roddy McDowell and, and uh, the guy who plays this and so on, they were just giving him like a, a rubber ape mask and sitting him, right. in the, sitting him up in the stands. And so when you look at him, you can tell it's a guy in a You can see that in like beneath, especially like in one of the, they, they all just have these open mouths. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're just rubber masks they threw over their head. I mean, but it was cool because the guy, was it Mark Lenard, right? So he was... Is he, is he Urko? He was he Urko. Was Urko. Right? Yeah, right. Ursus was in the movies. He was right. basically the, you get them confused because they both have the cool helmet. Like that was yes. there was nothing cooler than that. And that was the thing they created, like those glyphs on the helmet, like the yes. whatever that is it eight language, language or what is it? Like, Simeon <laughs> Max, was that Simeon? You're a Simeon expert in language, I think. <laughs> is, is that is that Simeon that we know? Yeah, that's exactly what that was. Uh, yeah, Mark Sim- Lenard's Spock's yeah. father. Yeah, it's Bach's father. Yeah, I mean they they did they did such a nice that show. I really enjoy that show. I still I found a place on uh, on the web where you can stream them all. I watched them all again last year. You know, doing all that COVID stuff and watch them and it, and just they're just I don't know they're really good and you can see why people have such an affinity towards them. You know, and yep. over time, but it still blows me away they didn't do better back in those days. 
that that is, that is uh, until you guys are talking about it, uh, you know, I didn't realize it. And that it was really not considered a, a huge success because, um, I mean, the, who hasn't, heard, you know, I mean, hasn't heard of it, you know, I mean, you, you get uh, other shows that are, uh, seem pretty crappy that, you know, nine, 10 seasons and, uh, mm-hmm. the apes ran, you know, 13 episodes and that's it. Huh? You know, it's like, I mean, you know, we I think we would be remiss in talking about the uh, Planet Venus without mentioning the iconic scene of the Statue of Liberty, right? Yes, right. Uh, you know, and and if that isn't just nailing it home for you, you know, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, I agree. I mean, those guys are out there freaking like. I don't know if they trained to ride horses or they knew how to ride horses, but man, they were hustling on those things. They weren't doing any little walks. They were riding those friggin' things, chasing them through the, you know, chasing everybody. You know, I went to see um, the original Planet of the Apes on the big screen a few years ago when they they brought it back to theaters. Uh, TCM brought it back to, to theaters. And, and it was, I, I'd seen it so many times. I'm like, you know, I'm going to be probably a little bored because I know this movie front to back. Better in the theater, wasn't it? I know, and I saw that I was blown away seeing that on the big screen. I I was riveted. Uh, It was amazing. And I've always loved the Apes film. When I, the area that I grew up in, the two they always played in syndication that I saw all the time were Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and Battle for the Planet of the Apes. I didn't get to see Beneath a lot. That was always the one I wanted to see with the mutants, so. But that, though, I mean, it was amazing. And I, I wanted to see the TV show as a kid, but my parents wouldn't let me stay up to see it. And, I mean, I was just fascinated with Planet of the Apes. Still am to this day. It's, it's, it's the best, best you know, sci-fi genre that's been out there for me, sci-fi type show. Uh, I, I really love it. And, I mean, Absolutely. that's the thing, right? Like, like you said, Max, it's like it lasted 13 episodes. Back then we had so little to choose from. And anytime something came on, you just watch it just because you were like a fan of the genre, like you'd watch Buck Rogers or you'd watch Logan's run because you're like, I just want to see this, my type of stuff on TV. And they always <laughs> failed. Like <laughs> they never were successful. That's true. That's true. I, I don't know. I thought it was a great show. I loved it. It definitely brings memories back of being a kid. I mean, I searched it out. I remember I was going through Best Buy one day. And I saw it on DVD years ago, years ago. I was like, oh, I should buy that. And I'm like, eh, it's too much. And well, I'll come back in another day. And as soon as I walked out of the store and went home the next morning, I got up, I'm like, let me go back and get it. It was gone. I'm like, Ugh. And then I searched and searched and searched for streaming so you could see it, you know, watch that stuff for free or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you can get it on DVD still. I think I've got the box. Yeah. When it came out. Yeah. Yeah. My you know the, the main guy, the one of the astronauts, uh, James Naughton, you know, whose brother is, right? No, who's his brother? David Naughton, American Werewolf in London. Oh, no, really? uh, the song "Making It." You that song? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! There, there's some. <laughs> yeah, Brian, Durant, bringing us all the trivia. <laughs> yeah, that's. I... Sometimes you come up with some shit, man. I don't even know how you come up with some of that stuff sometimes. That's unreal. That's absolutely unreal. You know, and, and again, you know, it seems like, you know, with 13, 13 episodes, you know, they're on one once a week and, you know, and 
you know, guys like, you know, like, like you, you know, that just, just planted themselves, you know, they knew that Planet of the Apes was coming on and that's where they were. And, you know, we're so spoiled, you know, we can, we're, here we are talking about, well, I'm just going to go buy it, you know, yeah. and it was, you know, but, you know, it's, that's the other part of it that makes it so weird that, you know, that something is iconic. I mean, we see it as iconic, you know, now, and that was so different from anything else that was on television at the time that, uh, that that would not be, you know, successful. And uh, it wasn't like, you know, hey, I'm just going to, I'll wait for it to come out on cassette or something, you know. Or, I, it, I agree. You know? I agree with you. 100%. What I love in the, the article is, um, if you read it, that because there wasn't enough episodes to put into syndication, they chopped up the episodes and made like mini movies out of them. Yeah. And these are the titles of, of the movies. There's There's Back to the Planet of the Apes, The Forgotten City of the Planet of the Apes, Treachery and greed on the planet of the apes, life, liberty, and the pursuit on the planet of the apes, and farewell to the planet of the apes. Wow! And then they they had they said uh, on some of them they would have, and I, you can find these on YouTube because I found them a few years back. Is in some of the syndication packages they actually brought Roddy McDowell in, and they made him up as an old Galen. And so, because people, because the series never ended, so we don't know if the astronauts ever got off the planet. That's and true. He just does something at the end. He's like sitting around a fire, and he's like, "And just so you know, you know, Burke and Verdon did finally find their way back home." You know, like, he's like, yeah. like just, so we, we don't have the money or support to do it, but we're gonna we're gonna get them home. They get them. Home. I remember the, the one episode where they're running through this like old town or something. They found like the giant supercomputer. <laughs> like, like in the room and it's so funny because they like the whole town is like whatever and there's some little kid i forget who he is he's if i remember i think he was a famous actor or whatever back in the day but you just find this big giant supercomputer, and i'm sitting there going you know i probably got more power in my watch than that whole giant <laughs> computer that they're doing and they're supposed to be in the future you know and you're thinking like everything gets smaller and more powerful and they make it bigger gigantic. yeah it was all that was always the, and the, the supercomputer would always talk like you are on the planet of the age. You know, they, they put it, how do, computer, how do we get back home? There is no way to get off the planet of the age. It's... <laughs> well, that was the same episode where Urko and... Was it Urko and Pete? I think those two got like... Urko, Urko got and hurt. Pete? Is there a name? Yeah, I mean, Urko and... Sorry, Urko got hurt. And uh, what's his face? Uh, Jesus Christ, man. I'm like so exhausted. Oh, awesome. Burke or Verdon? Burke. Uh, no, no, Burke, Burke. Yeah, it was Urko Burke. and Notton. I, I know what Burke. you're talking about. So Burke like saved him. Yeah. And it was like, you know, I'm, you know, it was like he saved him. It was like, well, should he just let him die there or something? Because he's always chasing him. But of yeah. course, he took the moral, he took the higher moral ground. He, uh, you know, he, he saved him and so on. And, I uh, think it's know, got a great was line a big there. episode. Where he grabs like Urko and he's like, "You kill me, you kill yourself." Like, it's yeah, like, exactly. That's really exactly overactive. Right. Yep. Like, it's like we need to work together to get out of here. That, that's exactly the one. But when they're in the room with the computer, it's like, it's like this, it's like this big, beautiful. There's nothing else in it. It's just the supercomputer. So they have this big room with the supercomputer, and I'm like, some place to sit, some place to write, just the computer. So I guess you just stand there and stare at it all day, you know. But yeah, that was some funny stuff. But that, it was a really good show. I mean, the, the actors in it were good. I thought they did a good job. Um, I always thought the guy that played Alan Vernon, for some reason, I just, 
he was always like the serious one, right? You know, he was like the right. real serious one. The other guy was like always cracking, you know, cracking the sarcasm, whatever. But uh, no, it was it was a good show. Or the one where he got it was the one where he got shot, and like Cornelius had to get the doctor, the lady chimp doctor, to read the medical book on humans and convince her that it was real in order to help him or save him or something like that. I mean, they these crazy episodes. Yeah, I think that I watched it. Like uh, a version of, of Starsky and Hutch on Planet of the Apes to me. Yeah, exactly. Exa- you know what? That's actually funny you say that because they almost kind of they almost kind of look like them. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, you know. I wonder if Migo just used the same, they, they should have just used the same head skulls for Starsky and Hutch that they used for Burke and Verdon, you know. That's right. That's, yeah, I mean, that. yeah, that, that's doable. I mean, they were big into how to you know use things and reuse them, which is that. But uh, yeah, no, there were um, there's some of the favorites. I think I remember getting some Planet of the Apes figures from Migo as a kid. The treehouse I had, I loved oh, it yeah. till it broke. You know, the friggin' thing kept snapping. But the thing that I loved about that more than anything else was the weapons table. When yep. I was a kid, I didn't. But when I was a kid, I was five or four when I got. I didn't. I just know they have these plastic things on a table. I didn't right. realize until later that you assemble them and they actually make some kind of crossbow or something like that weapon, which was pretty neat. Because everything in Ape City would be made out of white plastic. Back in the day, you're going to make a, you know, a crossbow out of, out of uh, Now, I remember the, the Forbidden Zone Garage set was the one that yes. I liked a lot. And I, everything I got, always, I, I got that like secondhand at a garage sale or a white elephant sale. I had that. And then I think I had the Mountain, the Fortress. Um, wow. That was awesome. good. But the didn't they make a playset that was, um, it was basically repurposing the Bat Cave where it was like it was kind of like Ape City and they no had, that was that was the they had the Statue of Liberty on it. Wait, Wait was, what that was it? I thought that was the Action Jackson Lost Continent playset. I think they yeah, did, but they made it an Apes playset and they, they made it with um they I think they actually has the Statue of Liberty on it and they have the table. To perform the autopsies yeah, on the I, humans and stuff like that. Oh, fantastic! That's what yeah. everybody needs. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I could we talk for probably, hours on Planet of the I know. I know. We could go on forever. Yeah, I love pouring over these old issues of of Starlog magazine because I used to always be looking at them in the drugstore or, or the comic book store or something like that because it was the only way to find out what movies were coming out and and things along those lines. It's kind of interesting. You, you'll see things like certain directors are touted to direct something and then they never wind up doing that project or yep. someone else wound up doing it. And, uh, of course it's, it's cool to, to read about, you know, even this piece here was sort of a nostalgic piece on the TV series. It was written well after the TV series had already been canceled. And, uh, you know, now we, we, you know, it, it just, I, it's, it's fantastic. It's a lot of fun to go through these and talk about this stuff. I could, again, I could talk for hours on Planet of the Apes. I absolutely definitely definitely a good topic and rich i like to commend you for using the using the drugstore reference because today i think if you use that <laughs> we think you're going to the pot shop it was like going to the pharmacy i'm like you mean the drugstore like you can't really say that i'm like, okay i can't say the drugstore. we used to always call it the drugstore drug yeah rexall drugs rexall like, yeah yeah. Ex- yeah exactly now it's the pharmacy we don't put the word drug anymore um, but yeah, but no, this is, this is definitely fun. I think this is, like I said, like the last time, this is a topic we could just go on and on and on about. There's so many 
pieces you can go into. There's so many branches you can go out from this and so much stuff to talk about. It's, it's a lot of fun. It really is. So, so what are you guys promoting today? Well, as usual, I've got the Dr. Durant's YouTube page, uh, YouTube channel. We talk about old toys, old comic books. Uh, I showcase talk about movies, things along those lines. Uh, I have done a couple of Planet of the Apes episodes. I plan on doing some more. I've got a ton of Planet of the Apes memorabilia here that I've got to show off. And, um, you know, come by, see us on Dr. Durant's uh, YouTube page. I've also got a Facebook page, a Facebook group, too. Dr. Durant, uh, check us out uh, to quote or paraphrase Dr. Zayas. Look for it. You may like what you find. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely going to like what you find over there at Dr. Durant's Good stuff. Side. Good stuff. Yes, Maximus. sir. Well, I'm Max Overnighter, and uh, you know, one of these days I'm going to be a big shot like you guys and put together a YouTube channel. But other than that, for right now, um, pretty much focus on uh, – I do a lot of the a lot of the Batman stuff and a lot of DC, but I kind of slip off into some other retro stuff. Uh, my my things will be found usually on the Mego Like Facebook group page. Uh, that's Mego Like on Facebook, Max Overnighter, and uh, you'll, you'll you'll see me every once in a while on uh, the My Mego Like uh, YouTube streams. And uh, as a matter of fact, while we were doing this, I got hit up a message. Somebody asking, where did the YouTube's, where did the live stream go? So, <laughs> yeah, so. The, that's all fun stuff. I think, um, yeah, I think Max, you're going to wind up probably being, uh, building another room, your dedicated Batman room. Now, after all this reminiscing, you're already gearing up the cash to go searching for new stuff and. You're going to need another room. You're going to need a bigger room. You need a bigger room. <laughs> you know, it's either you have too much stuff or not enough space. And it's yeah. of not enough space. Is that, is that not, is that not the truth? Well, I'm, uh, oh yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm Lou Melagrana and, uh, we get together on a Facebook page, Migo like, we also get together here to talk. Uh, we have, Webpage mymegolike.com that specializes in action figures and old costumes and play sets and things like that to spark conversation, I think is what they're for. And uh, also, YouTube channel of My Mego Like. All right, let's talk about the music of 1981. We know that this is the year that MTV debuted. Most households didn't get it when it first debuted. But these are classics that we're going to remember if we were of that era, especially. Albums that were popular. Journey Escape. Huge hits such as Don't Stop Believing," Who's Crying Now, Open Arms. Iron Maiden album Killers with Twilight Zone and Wrathchild. Also that year, Made in Japan EP came out. And this is the year that Bruce Dickinson joined in October of 1981. Pat Benatar, Precious Time album with Fire and Ice and Promises in the Dark. Billy Squire, Don't Say No, included The Stroke and My Kind of Lover. The Rolling Stones, Sucking in the 70s. And also Tattoo You, huge album with Start Me Up and Hang Fire. Hall and Oates, Private Eyes with I Can't Go For That. Van Halen released Fair Warning, 
including the singles Unchained and Mean Street. Duran Duran, Planet Earth, Girls on Film. Yeah, both those songs were on their debut album. How about Foreigner, Four, including Urgent, Jukebox Hero, and Waiting on a Girl Like You. Motley Crue, Too Fast for Love. The Go-Go's, Beauty and the Beat, including Our Lips Are Sealed and We Got the Beat. You were always a Go-Go's fan, weren't you? Yeah, I love the Go-Go's. They were really the first all-girl band where they played their own instruments. Def Leppard released High and Dry, which had the single Bringing on the Heartache. ZZ Top, El Loco, with Pearl Necklace and Tube Snake Boogie. Ozzy Osbourne's Diary of a Madman, with Flying High Again and Over the Mountain. Jay Giles Band, with Freeze Frame and Centerfold. Black Sabbath album, Mob Rules. Men at Work, Business as Usual, with Down Under and Who Can It Be Now. Do you remember what a big deal they were at the time? Yeah, they were huge. Kiss released Music from the Elder. Plasmatics, Beyond the Valley of 1984. This was such an interesting album because Wendy Williams was topless with just two pieces of electrical tape covering her nipples. And I remember my brother and I would just stare at that album cover saying, boy, I'd like to peel off the tape. <laughs> Stevie Nicks, album Belladonna, had the hits Stop Dragging My Heart Around and Edge of Seventeen. Motorhead Live, No Sleep to Hammersmith. Rush, Moving Pictures, which included Limelight and Tom Sawyer. Also in 1981, Exit Stage Left was released. The Police, Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic. Loverboy, Working for the Weekend. You Too, Gloria. The Cars, Shake It Up. Prince, Controversy. Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, I Love Rock and Roll. What'd you love about that song, Cutie Pie? It was just a great song. And I did that song at karaoke at uh, at a Star Trek convention. And I was actually on stage with, with Aaron Eisenberg and J.G. Hertzler. That's on YouTube, isn't it? Is that video on YouTube? Um, Yeah, it is. Human League, Don't You Want Me? Phil Collins, In the Air Tonight. ACDC, For Those About to Rock. Soft Cell, Tainted Love. The Oak Ridge Boys, Elvira. Juice Newton, Queen of Hearts. Abba, One of Us. Rick Springfield, Jesse's Girl. Olivia Newton-John, Physical. Bow Wow Wow, I Want Candy. Adam Ant, Stand and Deliver. Judas Priest, Heading Out to the Highway. Kim Carnes, Betty Davis Eyes. Huge hit. That was on the radio all the time. My mother loved that song. Yeah, I loved the song, and I didn't realize at the time it was a cover song. I didn't know that either. Weird Al. Another one rides the bus. This was his first single ever. Yeah, I remember it. Everyone at school was singing it. Sheena Easton for Your Eyes Only. Another classic James Bond theme. How about Kenny Rogers through the years? Manhattan Transfer, Boy from New York City. Stray Cats, Rock This Town. George Harrison, All Those Years Ago. Damn, there are a lot of great songs in 1981. Let's con scene. Let's talk about what it was like, Dragon Con. Was it one for the record books? I think so. It was another success. We presented four panels, two on the comic book track, two on the track track. This year we tried to do things that we've never done before. And we'll talk about that. Because Dragon Con is just so ridiculously enormous, you can't do it all. You can bounce around and try to do something that you haven't done in the past. And I think that's going to be a never-ending adventure. 
So this is our first time, my first time ever being in the kilt blowing. That was an experience in itself because it's you're on stage with about 70 other men, one by one, having your kilt blown with a leaf blower in front of over a thousand screaming women. And you were in that crowd. I was there, baby. <laughs> yeah, it so it was a lot of fun. What did you think about being in it? Uh, it was an experience. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, first time ever doing the Japanese arcade, Dragon Con actually brings in video game machines from Japan and allows people to play them freely. They're all on free play. They're not regular upright machines like we have in America. They're different configurations. Some of them you sit down. Some of them don't really have buttons. You wave your hands. The graphics are so intense that I think, for me, it was an information overload. But Dance Dance Revolution is still popular over there. So we got to play one of the newer models of DDR. And we had a lot of fun doing that. They they had several of them set up there, and they were all in use all the time. So. And we were there 1 o'clock in the morning, and yeah. it's still... Still high gear. You'd, you'd never guess that it was in the middle of the night. But, but it was a lot of fun playing it. We just, and, and they, they didn't have songs that we were familiar with. It was all Japanese songs on it. Also, quiet coloring. I'd never guess that this would now, I'm going to do this every year. Well, well, I had never done it either. I think I read this was only the second time they had it, but it was coloring for charity, which they have, they had every night at the con. Where you, um, you can get a, a page out of a coloring book for a dollar donation to charity, or you can buy the, the coloring book for ten dollars for charity. And, but all the art was made by, by Dragon Con artists. They all contributed a page to the book. And you sit down in a quiet lecture hall, which, and they give you coloring pencils, and it's just so relaxing. Yeah. I, I mean, because I always like adult coloring anyway. I, I have several coloring books here. Um, but yeah, you just, you just go in and color and talk. They, it's, it's in a, a more quiet room. There are other people in there talking, but it's not like going to the parties where it's so noisy. So it's just a, a quiet place to relax. But one of my favorite parties this year was the 80s dance party. Oh, we had a lot of fun at that. That's, well, that's something we do every year. But yeah, the 80s music is just so much fun. And with the resurgence of Stranger Things, the dominant costume by far was some sort of Stranger Things cosplay. And that was the theme of the 80s party. Very nostalgic. And and yeah, I think that like a lot of people really love the 80s music. I mean, it, it's become popular like even with people who didn't grow up in that time. Lex Luthor has Superman trapped. He's using kryptonite to destroy his powers. Now you'll tell me why Superman peanut butter tastes so great. Never. So fresh roasted, so creamy, so yummy, that its secret will be mine, all mine. I foiled again. Just wait, Superman. I'll find out. Superman peanut butter. Its strength is its great taste. Starlog Magazine, issue number 46, cover date, May 1981. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. The doctor's out. From Linda McLaren of Palmdale, California. What a marvelous choice for the new doctor. 
Though I will regret the loss of Tom Baker, I can think of no one more perfect to replace him than Peter Davison. I've been watching all creatures great and small for quite a while now, and am an enthusiastic fan of the show. I couldn't believe it. Tom Baker leaving. I was shell-shocked. I hope you'll have more in the future on the new Doctor Who, because a lot of us fans would like to see him. I know the role couldn't have gone to a woman. They'd have to rename the show Nurse Who. That's from Kevin Hill out of Keene, New Hampshire. Alistair Munro of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada writes, I was very relieved to hear that in keeping with a 16-year tradition, Doctor Who will be a man and not a woman. After all, a woman's place is being a companion to the Doctor, not being the Doctor. Well, you can tell that was written a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is, shortly thereafter, in Doctor Who Weekly, that's another magazine that we collect, there's a number of fans saying, hey, if we're going to be changing things over, it could go in any direction. So, there's always going to be fans that just want to keep things the way it is, and there's still another group of fans that say the Doctor could go in any direction. And I'm a huge fan of Jody. I think she does a wonderful job as the Doctor. If we can have a female master, obviously you can have a female Doctor. What does Starlog have to say about that? To Kevin and Alstair, someone's been feeding you both some very slanted and dangerous biases. It's never too early to reassess your attitudes about a woman's place. Log Entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Bernard Lee, 1908-1981 Science fiction fans universally mourned the passing of one of the espionage genre's staple figures, Bernard Lee, who died shortly after the New Year. Lee played M, the chief of the British Secret Service, in all of the James Bond films except for the spoof Casino Royale. I'm Bob Greenberger, and when I want to hear more about comic books, I always listen to Star Pop Log. Hi, this is Steve Eunice from supermanhomepage.com, and I'm with my good friend Michael Bailey. The article, the Starlog preview that we're going to be discussing is Superman 2, The Adventure Continues, which was written by Robert Greenberger. Somewhere in my archives I have this. I was not able to dig it out because it's behind a bunch of other stuff because the house is in a terrible state at the moment. <laughs> right. Um, but, yeah, I, I went through a period about 10 years ago where I was I was on eBay buying up every issue of, like, Starlog and other type of magazines from around that time period that had to do with any of the Superman films. Cool. Uh, just because I thought it would be... I basically thought it would be good research material, and this particular <laughs> article has a piece of research that I was completely unaware of uh, until reading it. So, because it's never brought up in any of the making of uh, okay. specials that have been done. Wow. Okay. So I'm guessing so, you're going to get to that in a second. Yep. Okay. Well, I was interested by the opening paragraph because it says he looks broader, stronger, more confident. There is a look of assurance on his face that gives others a sense of calm. With him around, you can feel safe even when three aliens come to rule the Earth. He looks broader, stronger, more confident, but it's actually filmed at the same time as the first movie. 
<laughs> well, some of it was. True. Yes, very true. First off, though, it's interesting. Robert Greenberger would go on to be an editor at DC. Uh, he was one of the people that was like behind Who's Who, and uh, he's written a lot of Star Trek stuff, um, and he's still very active online. Uh, so it's kind of it's kind of cool seeing his name uh, associated with this because uh, there's a lot of Starlog and comic scene and, and magazines like that had a lot of people that would eventually go on to be pretty big in the comics industry. Interestingly enough, this article starts with all the issues that Superman 2 faced in regards to Richard Donner being axed from being director and with Richard Lester stepping in and it talks about his work on previous films, um, including the Beatles um, film. Um, and, you know, the issues with the script and all that kind of, to- kind of thing. That's always anything. Anytime you hear anything or talk about Superman two, the Richard Donner, Richard Lester thing is for first and foremost in people's minds. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just Superman two is fascinating to me uh, as a film because one, it's very polarizing nowadays because the Donner cut does exist, hmm. <laughs> so there's now a basis of comparison. Though I will hold that that is an interesting artifact, but it's not a true movie. Please stop making it in putting it as the only option in box sets you know you have a film that was mostly completed by the time they had to stop and just concentrate on the first one and then they had to refilm a bunch of stuff but a lot of that footage is still in the movie from the originals like if you see gene hackman's face that's a donner shot Mm. Uh, and especially at the end at the fortress Yes. It's like almost like a game, like Donner, Lester, Donner, Lester, Donner, Lester. And he even had a you know a voice actor mimicking Gene Hackman's voice for yep. certain Lex Luthor lines, you know, when he's shaking his fist at being dropped off by Ursa, you know. So, um, yeah, very interesting comparisons there between the two shoots and uh, from Donner to Lester is one of the uh, headings in this article and talks about the budget blowouts and... And everything that uh, that that happened during this period of the film's production. Yeah, no, it's just we will never stop arguing about this. You know, from uh, Richard like, Donner, it, Richard Lester. Then you also had the the the, the uh, Brando stuff. You know, cutting him out of the film, bringing yeah. Susanna York in. You know, the arguments that the Salkines had with uh, with you know, Brando. So a lot going on behind the scenes that would become almost as interesting as the story of the film itself. You know, on one hand, you know, if you're if you have that much clout to say I want more money, that's cool. But <laughs> to make three point seven million on a on top of the eleven percent gross, yeah, not net gross, yep. Uh, you know that 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 that's 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 of the highest order. Though I still hold that, as sexist as it may sound. There's something about a son talking to his mother about the woman he loves that has more resonance with yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, than, than, because let's face it, Jor-El hated Lois. You watch, you watch that Donner cut. He's like glaring at her. Um, the AI is. Yeah. Any rate. Yeah. But uh, I always kind of liked uh, as a kid. I always loved. Oh, in this one, the mother comes back. Mm-hmm. And she gets more screen time. So, you know, what do I know? I was just, I was like seven at the time. So, 
Now, one of the interesting facts about this film, and it's something that we should talk about, was the fact that it was released well before... The US release was a lot later than Europe, UK. Do you know why that was the case? What happened there? Uh, well, the, the article, I think, alludes to that, is that they were trying to hit the peak movie-going time periods around the world. They released it in the winter in the States, but it was summer in Australia. Mm -hmm. So you guys got it before we did. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's only fair, considering Lex Luthor was trying to conquer it. <laughs> um, uh, and Sarah Douglas was like the only cast member to really go on any of the international press junkets. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of them were just kind of staying out of it. But it's this weird, like, okay, we're going to release it internationally before all these other uh, other markets in the United States get it, but we want to really keep that a secret because we don't want it getting out. You know, people talking. This would never happen today. Couldn't. This couldn't happen today. Exactly. This is impossible. No, <laughs> it's, it, it's hilarious. It is. It's and it's it's so true. Like back in the day, you know, unless you were buying a magazine or a newspaper or speaking to somebody on the phone long distance you know, that lived in one of those other countries, you wouldn't know about film releases, you know, in different parts of the world. you just get your own ones and that would be it. And you wouldn't have any spoilers. You wouldn't have any pirating um, unless someone had, you know, come from that country with a VHS or a Beta a Max uh, cassette tape for having somehow pirated it from over there and brought it back, which I remember one of my cousins did from uh, an overseas trip when one of the Star Wars, I think it was Return of the... Uh, sorry, the... Uh, the the Jedi the third what was the third one I'm really outing myself Return of the Jedi, of the Jedi. I wanted to say that and for some reason it didn't sound right but uh, when Return of the Jedi came out so uh, yeah it was a different time and like you said today it couldn't happen uh, we were just talking today previously about DC League of Super Pets doesn't come out in Australia till September yet the digital release is already happening August 23rd so uh, in the states so weird times um, and I'm you know it just didn't happen back then. And Greenberger mentions that a little bit, uh, and it's funny because he's just like, you know, people are in the UK are bootlegging it on, right. vi on video cassette, and I'm like, yeah, but this is still a time period where not everybody had a v v uh, VCR. Yeah. I mean, we didn't, my family, uh, not that we were like cutting edge technology people, and I, <laughs> I've fallen uh, in line with that. We, I didn't get a Blu-ray player until 2015. Um, so... But I remember we got our first VCR in 1983. Uh, so it's weird to think that, like, before then, those were, like, almost $1,000 machines hmm. uh, that, you know, not everyone had one. It didn't become ubiquitous as it would later when they got, you know, so much cheaper. Hmm. So it's funny that it was still kind of a problem. But not as much as it would be, and then, like you mentioned now, not definitely not now, where you could bootleg it digitally and exactly. just leak it onto the internet. So, <laughs> just fascinated. the The thing that I did not know until really reading this article was that Dino De Laurentiis was going to get the rights to Superman uh, after this movie was over and was prepping Superman three, but stopped uh, to focus on Flash Gordon. Uh, you know. Dino De Laurentiis, maker of fine feature films. Um, I, I'm glad that he made the Flash Gordon film. I know it's cheesy. I still love it. Uh, <laughs> it's 
got a great soundtrack and all that. But it's just kind of funny that the Sulkines were just such mercenaries. Yeah, and they were, you know, and then the, the, you know, you know, Ilya especially talks now that it's like Camden was the one that killed the Superman franchise, not us. Um, and yet he was going to give up. They were going to give up Superman three uh, for for a buck, apparently. So, you know. I also like that this article goes into how Alexander Salkind was wanted in Switzerland <laughs> and was only getting out of it be, uh, being technically a diplomat. And I'm just like, all this stuff that everyone was treating like brand new material, like, like brand new uh, information, information in 2001 yeah. and 2006. You know, we talked about this on one of the other articles that we talked about uh, for this show. Like, it's all there, but you yeah. had to be reading Starlog to know it. Exactly, they were digging deep back way back then, and now people are making out that uh, new information when it was known before the film even came out. So, uh, I also found the uh, comic book uh, article within this very interesting. Uh, firstly and foremost, the image above—I don't know what they did to Sarah Douglas's nose in that photo, but uh, there's some weird <laughs> Photoshop uh, or probably previous to Photoshop work done on that uh, image but uh, it talks about the tie-in comic books that they're uh, doing that they what were doing for Superman 2 which uh, it says opens in June there in the US uh, first was Krypton Chronicles recounting the history yep. of the L family and uh, by E. Nelson Bridwell uh, DC's resident historian uh, it says there and then the other one was uh, The Phantom Zone um, uh, explaining the background of uh the villains that were put into the Phantom Zone and Darrell's, uh, you know, uh, finding and discovering the the Phantom Zone and you know using the ray projector to send criminals into the interdimensional zone. So uh, yeah, pretty cool that they talk about the comic book tie-ins uh, that uh, obviously would have been uh, very interesting reading at the time for Superman fans who were into the comic books and not just the films. Yeah, the Phantom Zone miniseries is really cool because I think it was one of the first times that the idea of Kryptonians coming to Earth would be dangerous. Mm. Uh, you know, they're always treated as villains, but this was like one of the first times in the comics that it was like, oh my god, they could literally destroy the planet. Yeah. And Superman is not here to stop them. Uh, with Gene Cole and Art. Krypton Chronicles, it's good. It's a bit dry. Uh, it tells the history of Krypton, if I remember correctly, it tells it in reverse chronological order. Mm. Uh, it has uh, Superman going to uh, what is ostensibly New Krypton because Kandor had been embiggened uh, by this point and existed in kind of like a Brigadoon dimension that only came into phase with the Earth every once in a while. And it was basically Superman and Kara going home and just telling stories about the history of Krypton, uh, which all seemed very biblical. <laughs> I also find it, as a graphic designer, uh, find it really interesting that this article uh, goes on for a couple of like, pages, 31, uh, 32, 33, and then it's continued on page 63. Uh, they didn't, we didn't have enough room to fit it in here. We didn't weren't able to do it. So, yeah, we've got to go all the way to page... 63 to be able to finish off reading this article, which uh, is just really interesting to me that you'd have to, you know, and, and you go onto page 63 and you find this small column 
that just finishes off the Superman in the middle of the page uh, from page uh, 16. Uh, just, yeah, hilarious. That, that was really common for Starlog in Comic Scene, yeah. uh, which was published by the same by the same company. You would always have, like, the, the main article and then, like, either half a page or, like, this. Like you said, it's just one column finishing it up and there's two articles on either side, you know, one on each side of it. Um, but yeah, you, you gotta think though, and, and I don't know if we've mentioned this in the past couple of, of, of these uh, looks at the magazine that we've done. There was no internet. No. Uh, there was no, uh, you know, you, you, you had grapevine stuff like through conventions, but you had to go to those conventions to get that information. Yep. Uh, here was a magazine that was talking about everything. It, it's kind of, I, I love these things because now they're time capsules yeah. uh, to the era. But this was like like a kid reading this magazine back then, learning all these behind the scenes things about the film that, you know, the Superman film that they just went and saw. Uh, also, I want to, I want to, I always like this. June uh, 19th, 1981, not only the for the release of Superman 2, uh, the birthday, birth date of my wife. <laughs> uh, she was born three months premature, but that was that's her birthday. There you go. Um, but uh, yeah, interesting to wrap up, uh, the column was the talk about the options for Superman 3, uh, and that uh, after receiving 250000 for the first film and roughly 500000 for the second uh, Christopher Reeve will likely receive a seven-figure amount for the third film. Um, yeah, so uh, his price is just going up and up. <laughs> and finally get top billing. Yes. So, uh, yeah, so a really interesting article, as you said, looking behind the scenes of Superman 2 and the making of the movie and the all the issues that it had behind the scenes, you know, from the Salkinds to the directors to, you know, funding... Uh, to the actors coming and not coming back and issues uh, that the actors had with changing directors. Uh, very uh, in-depth article looking at Superman 2 at a time where it hadn't even reached our screens yet and yet uh, so much of the information that would become folklore many years down the track uh, would uh, be in this article, so uh, ahead of their time. All right, guys, I'm Steve Yunus. That was Michael Bailey. We're from supermanhomepage.com. Michael, you also do a podcast you might want to pub, uh, push right here. Oh, yeah, uh, the Fortress of Bailey 2 Podcasting Network that has shows like From Crisis to Crisis, Superman and Lois Tapes, The Overlooked Dark Knights. Just find it at fortressofbailey2.com. Science fiction in comic books in the 1960s and 70s. Joining me with in this conversation is my main man, Jamie. Main man. All right, buddy. If anybody's been following StarPodLog for the past couple of episodes, we've noticed that in StarLog magazine there has been systemically telling us how science fiction has affected comic books. 30s, 40s, 50s. Now we're into the 60s and 70s. I'm going to go ahead and say 1961 was an amazing year for science fiction in comic books because of the Fantastic Four. Once you have that cosmic element brought into the superhero genre on that level, we know that DC was doing it before, obviously, but Fantastic Four brought it in a whole different stratosphere. Yeah, definitely. With with the, well, that started off being the advent of Marvel in itself, and then you saw that 
they started incorporating elements because I mean it's also the science fiction too. This was also about the same time as the space age in the in the Soviet Union as well as I guess Russia then, but Russia as well as with the United States and and so space travel was becoming more and more explored, especially like if you look back at some of the comics in the nineteen fifties. And it's not just exclusive to to Marvel itself. DC was also in, was including it, especially like with Green Lantern, mm-hmm. because Green Lantern was the uh, you know they were basically like policemen of of space, and then they were also I guess you can see like the science fiction with Marvel was the Fantastic Four. They were four. They were basically four humans that went up in space and they were bombarded by cosmic radiation and you know they metamorphosized or mutated into superpowered but and that's also in the first first you also saw the mole man and no one had seen that before and the mole man was was subterranean was using technology to burrow through the earth and then like you as witnessed by the cover of that it looked like a giant hemorrhoid erupting is when you see that creature popping out of the earth, needing some cool preparation H, and then it's like they're attacking the Fantastic Four. So when you think about how essentially the first Marvel Age of comics, look, I say Spider-Man is science fiction. I mean, the only thing I would argue about Spider-Man is the fact that he was bitten by a radioactive spider. Science. At a science fair. Fiction. Fine line between science fiction and and fantasy and anything with comic books is the fact that you throw in superpowered. It's like anything that involves science. You throw in some superpowered characters, and all of a sudden it becomes comic books. You subtract that, it becomes science fiction. It's a pretty easy equation. I learned that in algebra. You know, it's it, it's funny because during this time period, though, there still was crossovers with established science fiction franchises that were in in the newspaper strips there was a buck rogers comic strip this is before the tv show so that was like the the grandfather of popular science fiction so that was in a comic strip form so we've already had in previous episodes established that superman is technically science fiction in comics yeah absolutely i would i would say yeah his origins like if you read action comics number one and you, if you, if you can get through it, you see that essentially that that's it. I mean, he's got. What about the Flash? Again, I mean, it's science. Argue, he's, he's, well, you would again, you'd argue the same thing. I mean, have what's the origin of his powers? Random lightning bolt strikes through the window, hits a bunch of chemicals, splashes him, and then they then it, and then it, and then it endows him with. Super superpowers. The Silver Age was awesome for the Super Silver Age was awesome for bringing all that to the fore. Yeah, Green Lantern, again, interstellar, universal police force. What about Legion of Superheroes? You throw in, fast forward to Earth in the 30th century, and you have a you have teenagers that are that have superpowers, and they're in. Yeah, I mean it's. As far as like the science element, science fiction element of it, they're doing they're basically doing everything that we would expect or that they expected the writers back in the 1960s to that teenager or people would do in the 30th century. They just have superpowers on top of it. Yeah, and and also by the time you got to the 70s, Marvel was struggling financially. We've had Jim Shooter on the show to talk about it. They had to start 
licensing and start getting some other properties in. Star the Wars. thing that saved them was Star Wars. Yeah, I mean Star Wars in the in 1977 or 1978. I mean, yeah, I mean, again, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that Star Wars is 100 percent science fiction. But yeah, I mean, that's a pretty as far as crossing over to comics. I mean, it just shows you that something like that can start a uh, you know there's an interest that you they they share the same um, fan base. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, and that's one of the best things about 60s and 70s comics. And soon we'll be talking about 80s comics, is that it was very story-driven, and they they wanted to get a wide base of readers, but then have that connective tissue. That science fiction in comics, as Jim Shooter has said, show me a good science fiction story, put it in a comic, and that comic will sell. <laughs> I'm Kirby Bartlett Sloan, one of the co-hosts of the 20 Megabyte Doctor Who podcast, and I've been a Doctor Who fan for a very, very long time. I'm going to start by discussing an article entitled PBS, The Other Market. Unlike a lot of Starlog articles, this one's pretty dry and concerned mainly with how America's public broadcasting system would choose what shows each individual station would play in syndication which was different than how most TV stations did it due to funding and such. Uh, the article is only Starlog-related because it uses the syndication of Doctor Who, and particularly the acquisition of seasons 16 through 18, that's Tom Baker's key to time all the way to his regeneration in Legopolis, as the hook for reading the article. The popularity of Who was just becoming so strong in the States that this block of shows included Legopolis, which had just been broadcast a month or so before the article was printed. Sure, this is all interesting, sort of, but what was it like in those days as a Doctor Who fan in the States, and what was fandom like? So I'm going to tell you how I became a Doctor Who fan. I'm a lifelong science fiction fan. My first true fandom was Star Trek, and the first years of it being syndicated. I was aware of it when it was first run, but didn't watch it for some reason, because it didn't really appeal to me when I was six years old. By the time I was 12, though, Trek was my life. I would add on other shows I would obsess over, like UFO and the Prisoner, as well, when I was a preteen and a teenager. I also love all things British, and during my preteen and teen years, I developed an obsession with British humor. The Goon Show and Monty Python were things that I was always listening to and watching. I attended my first science fiction convention in 1978, and by 1980, when I first saw Doctor Who, I'd been to eight conventions. Of course, I'd heard of Doctor Who, but knew very little about it. The main thing that stood out to me about it was when I was look, working at the Little Rock Public Library in my summer job around 1977. A book about the history of science fiction came in and had a, had a paragraph about the show and a picture of a Zygon which I found both fascinating and rather cheesy-looking. It, it was weird. <laughs> but I, it, it was fascinating, though. I wanted to know more. In May of 1980, I was between the spring and summer semesters at Northern Illinois University. I was spending a few days at my parents' house and happened to notice that Doctor Who was being shown on WTTW, Chicago's PBS station, at 5.30 p.m. every weekday. So on Monday, May the 12th, I turned on the TV to see what all the fuss was about. 
I then turn on the second episode of The Hand of Fear. I had no idea who the characters were, except it was easy to tell who was the Doctor. I immediately fell in love with Sarah Jane Smith as she was walking around the Nunton nuclear complex insisting Eldrad must live. The cliffhanger was the reactor going critical. Wow, this show is good! I didn't care that special effects were a bit primitive. It was interesting and made me want to see more. So, Tuesday at 5.30, I was watching again after having brought a small black-and-white TV with me to my little room in my rooming house. Eldred has regenerated from their hand and leads the Doctor and Sarah Jane to the planet Castria and Cliffhanger again gets shot in the chest with a poison dart. Wednesday, I was thinking to myself, what's going to happen? Judith Paris's Eldrad regenerates into Stephen Thorne's Eldrad, and hijinks happen until the Doctor trips Eldrad into an abyss with his scarf. I was loving this. But the Doctor gets summoned to Gallifrey and has to take Sarah Jane home because she wasn't allowed on Gallifrey. What? I had no idea at the time that the story was Sarah Jane's last regular story and didn't know that companions come and go. Bummer. Those three episodes gave me everything I needed, though, to understand the show and be hooked. There were references to Gallifrey, Time Lords, Two Hearts, Regeneration, as in Eldrads, Jelly Babies, and the iconic scarf was a major plot point. I was immediately a Whovian. I was watching the daily episodes as much as I could. I would occasionally miss an episode, but it was easy to figure out what was going on. I had no, no program guides or anything. By July, I was steeped in classic Tom Baker. Deadly Assassin introduced the Master to me. The Face of Evil introduced Leela, for whom I named a cat a year later. Robots of Death would tell me not to throw hands. Towns of Wing Chiang gave me an entertaining historical with more great characters. Invisible Enemy gave me my favorite robot dog. Horror Fang Rock gave me Nobody Lives. The Sunmakers was great. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. For some reason, they uh, showed images of the Findal after the Sunmakers. Probably one of the few times WTTW showed something in the wrong order. But then they were out of episodes and rotated back to Tom Baker's first episode, Robot, on July 2nd. That's fine by me. Life rotated around and so did Doctor Who. By September 22nd, it had rotated back around to the Hand of Fear. I was able to see that first episode. In NIU, I was a member of the science fiction club, NISFA. That's the Northern Illinois Science Fiction Association. During meetings, several, several of us started talking about Who as we had all seemingly discovered it during the past few months. On September 29, 1980, we gathered in the TV room at one of the university's dorms to start watching together. While watching The Deadly Assassin, we formed a splinter group from NISFA and called ourselves the United Northern Illinois Time Lords. Unit. During all this time, I would do as much research as I could to find out about the show. This was pre-internet, folks. I was going through microfilm and archived copies of Radio Times. The university did subscribe to Radio Times, but it got it about three weeks late. It was through these that I found out about Tom Baker's leaving the show, and I passed the news along to the club. WTTW was also making changes to when they were broadcasting the show. They shifted from 5.30 in the afternoon to 10 at night. On November 14th, they stopped showing it daily at all. 
unit had shifted from watching at a dorm TV room to one of the two TV rooms at the student center. Fortunately, 10 at night meant that we didn't have to fight with others in the student center to watch what we wanted to. I liked watching in the TV room because I could see it in color, since I had just a black and white TV back in my room. Doctor Who had caught on big time by the fall of 1980. The biggest science fiction convention in the Chicago area at the time was WindyCon, and the weekend of October 24th was an exciting one for me, as most of the weekend was about Doctor Who. I bought my first scarf for a dollar a foot. I think it was $12, but it's a bit stretched out now, so I'm not quite sure. It's inaccurate, but I'm still fond of it, as it was a Doctor Who scarf. There was enough interest by this point that room parties were being held where older episodes were being shown. I saw An Unearthly Child, The Three Doctors, Time Warrior, and Destiny of the Daleks, and also a little bit of Blake 7 that weekend. I bought my first TARDIS model, a tin bake with Tom Baker peering out of it, which I unfortunately have misplaced. I have no idea where it is. I think it's up in my attic, but I've searched and searched and searched it. I started buying Target novelizations. I started buying production stills. In January, WTTW changed formats entirely. They started showing entire stories every Sunday evening at 11 p.m. instead of individual stories uh, every night at 10. I started recording the audio of each story onto reel-to-reel tape by propping a microphone up in front of my black-and-white TV. If this sounds familiar... Although I didn't know it at the time, this was the same thing that British fans had done in the mid-60s, which is why we at least have audio of some of the missing stories that the BBC just, well, all of the missing stories that the BBC had destroyed. I still have my reel-to-reel tapes that I made in those days, but I don't have any way of playing them back. 1981 was mostly my studying university, and lots of classic movies seen for the first time, like Raiders, and Doctor Who every Sunday night, sometimes alone, sometimes with unit. Every convention I went to that year had someone showing old episodes, ones that I had seen before and ones that I only read about, like The Leisure Hive. By June, there were Doctor Who panels at conventions. Unfortunately for me, my extreme Whovian period would end on October 11, 1981, when I moved from the Chicago area to Kentucky. I watched my last story on WTTW that evening, Destiny of the Daleks, and hoped that the PBS stations in Kentucky would have Doctor Who. Unfortunately, they didn't. At that point, only 17 months after I had become a Whovian, my lifeline was cut. I had my audio recordings. After I got a VCR, I would take it to cons and join up with others where we would daisy-chain VCRs together to duplicate tapes. I remember five VCRs in a row all taping together. It was at a convention during the 20th anniversary that I was able to see the five doctors, but other than that, my fandom slowly became more of a memory than an obsession. When the TV movie came out, I recorded it on VCR and watched once, but the enthusiasm had waned. In 2004, I started seeing rumors of Who coming back. Then it did, and so did my fandom, to the nth degree. Podcasts became a thing in 2005, just as Modern Who became a thing, and By 2011, I was a co-host on a Doctor Who podcast. Never imagined anything like that would happen. So, that's the life of a Whovian in the early 80s, because of PBS syndication. 
As always, we're going to close out this episode by discussing an advertisement that's found in Starlog. This is the inside back page. It shows three robots running towards the viewer, and they kind of sort of look like Shogun Warriors that we know, the, the those large dolls that were made, but not really. It says, get the Force into your home. Force 5. The most popular science fiction series in the world, 130 half-hour shows featuring the super robots that Mattel marketed as the Shogun Warriors. Grandizer, Gay King, Dangard Ace, the Star Avengers, and also the amazing Space Kitteers is ready for television in the USA. I've never seen this series. What they say is dubbed as the Shogun Warriors. Have you ever seen Force 5 before? No, I didn't. It says, to get the Force in your home, mail this coupon today. you got to figure this is 1981. Not everyone had a VCR. So this coupon, you checked off what you wanted to do. I want Force 5 in my home. I am writing letters to my local TV station. I am interested in Force 5 fan club. I want Force 5 Star Avengers poster, and I enclose $1 for postage and handling. Interesting. Well, obviously, this letter campaign was a failure, at least in most of the United States, because I've never seen it on TV. Yeah, I haven't either. <laughs> Just another one of those old ads. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. Yeah.